Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Peter, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I came across you by way of our mutual friend, Ryan Holiday, uh, who has been another one of those people who's referred an insane amount of really fascinating guests to our show over the years. Uh, so on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your journey, your background, your, your story, and how that has brought you to what you're up to in the world today and, and what you're known for? Sure. There's a lot of facets to cover, but my name is Peter Young. Um, and I, I guess I came to Ryan Holiday's attention by a very sort of convoluted path. But um, uh, if you Google my name, we'll just cover that stuff first. If you Google my name, uh, what you're going to see is uh, the word uh, eco-terrorist on just about every mention. Um, I was, I'm an animal rights activist and I have been for a lot of years. It's something that's um, very important to me. And um, in, um, when I got involved in activism in the mid-90s, I very quickly realized that uh, the tactics that I had been sort of spoon-fed um, were not very effective in actually saving animals. So mm -hmm. I began to look at tactics uh, from groups like the Animal Liberation Front. And um, in 1997, a friend and I went on a multi-state uh, campaign to free mink from fur farms. Mm -hmm. And we were ultimately uh, arrested and indicted, uh, facing up to 82 years in federal prison uh, for, for cutting fences at farms. So I went on the run. I became a fugitive for uh, eight years. Uh -huh. And uh, I was arrested in 2005. I served two years in prison and uh, I got out in 2007 and, um, and uh, there's a whole lot more we could, <laughs> we could go into, but that's the snapshot. Well, as you know, having dug into our archives, strangely enough, not the first person who's been on this show who's gone to prison. That's right. That's right. People find it interesting. <laughs> well, it's, it's an ongoing joke that, you know, you have to commit a crime to get on this show. <laughs> uh, well, actually, that, that brings up a lot of things. There's a lot of really interesting things. But, you know, I, one of the things that's always interesting to me is a journey before a journey, kind of, you know, childhood growing up. I mean, what causes you to grow up to be the kind of person that feels so compelled to do something about an idea that you go and you cut fences at farms? Like, there's got to be something in, internally, I think. Uh, that causes you to be that provocative and that audacious of a person. And I'm really interested in what kind of a background leads to that. It's interesting. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I feel like I'm really good at dissecting other people's backgrounds. <laughs> but when it comes to myself, I came from a very flatly middle class background. I grew up in Silicon Valley, uh, Los Gatos, California, wow. and then we later <laughs> moved up to uh, up to Mercer Island, Washington, outside of Seattle. So, um, so. Uh, very unturbulent background as far as my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, I, I really think kind of the impetus for everything was getting involved in the punk rock music scene uh, around the age of like 13, 14. Um, 
you know, people probably wonder, anyone that went, goes to prison, people wonder, okay, what's, what's the story here? What's your family life like? Mm-hmm. What did your parents do to you? And uh, I really don't have any of that to speak of other than a divorce when I was about 10. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I got involved in the punk rock scene and um, that just imparted a sense of urgency that it's the obligation of all of us to, to not just complain about things but actually take action on them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I really trace that sort of stirring of a, of, of a higher calling to, to, to those days and that eventually did lead me <laughs> to prison. <laughs> mm. So there, there's really two things here that, that interest me. Um, and these just came up as I was thinking about the way you've described this. You, know, you talked about the 90s and activism. You talked about punk rock. And the theme that keeps coming up over and over for me is this sense of mission and community. And I'm really interested in, in what lessons you brought from those days that could be applied to the world of the internet, the world we live in today, to further missions and communities and in, in, in the things that we're doing in our own lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, I and, and and fundamentally, I think it's um, getting away from uh, critique-based politics and critique-based lives, and getting into action-based lives. And I think the internet has really uh, just like poured gasoline on the fire when it comes to people who sort of fetishize opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that fundamentally, um, what I got out of you know the punk rock scene or whatever whatever you want to call it um, was an emphasis on taking action over over words and and so the internet now is and which is why i i i'm so critical of almost everything <laughs> that happens on the internet is it it's uh it's just a place for people who do nothing to seem like big people um <laughs> so i don't know if this gets at your question but um i think it, fundamentally it's it's people should be measured based on what they do and not what they say and mm-hmm. the internet has flipped that around that's that's actually a really interesting way of looking at it, and I've never thought about that. I mean, this this is this is like a minefield that we could dig into for an hour. Oh yeah, uh, and, and I I know what you're saying. I, I get it because I think that the internet makes it easy to to do a lot of things like that. Like you can get on Twitter and you can just start saying things, even though you're doing absolutely nothing. Right. Um, and then you know, the other thing is that there are people who are doing things. The problem is that we don't we we actually. You know, because we see the big platform, we see the big presence, we somehow equate their saying with their doing, and I think that's a real disconnect. Absolutely. And, and it allows um, it, you know, you can become a sort of, uh, uh, you know, world renowned figure in a field without ever ha- actually having contributed <laughs> much. Um, you can just be sort of a curator, and there's a role for that. Sure. Um, I mean, in a sense, as a podcaster, you're, you're kind oh, of, yeah, that, that, that's fine. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there are people. I mean, we can just talk about the activist world, um, uh-huh. um, but there are people whose 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 uh, credibility and credentials are built entirely on the internet, with almost no real world application, and the lines have become blurred. People aren't able to. People confuse the two, uh-huh. um, and uh, I just think it's become epidemic. Um, and, and you know, it, I don't want to. There's a role for 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 spokespersons, but I here's what it is. I I think people need to be honest about what they are. Right. Um, if you are somebody who writes a blog, um, say that you're somebody who writes a blog. Don't say you're that this like crusader for the revolution. Um, just be honest. Uh, and, and I think that's all we can ask out of out of anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Well, let's do this. Let, let's talk about what leads to the point of you thinking that okay, you know, to really 
be, you know, in action, to be honest and to stay true to who I am, my level of activism has to go to such a point that I'm going to start breaking laws and freeing mink from farms. What drives you to that point? Talk to me through that. Talk me through that journey. It's a very cold and uh, kind of dull, <laughs> pragmatic equation. Okay. Um, it, we, I had spent a couple of years protesting outside of various uh, uh, targets, whether it was the University of Washington Animal Research Lab or uh, uh, you know McDonald's, uh, the whole spectrum. And uh, and at the end of a couple years, um, me and some friends got together, and I remember it was actually one particular conversation where we sat around. And we said, okay, we're spending a lot of time critiquing every detail of what we do, whether it's like what slogan to put on what sign or how we should word this press release. But the only metric that matters is are we actually saving animals? Hmm. And we had never actually done that math. Have, are we actually saving animals? Now, when it comes to people that we had educated to become vegan, you know, that has sort of a, you know, like a, a direct effect. Um, you know, the average vegan eats – a hundred or you know, saves a hundred animals a year, whatever. But in terms of like the direct impact, there was almost nothing to speak of. So that's when the conversation got going about, okay, how can we actually, I mean, we're here to save animals. That's why we're here. We're not here to get our names in the paper. We're not here <laughs> to like, you know, yell at strangers on the street. We're here to save animals. And so that's when we started to do that math and say, okay, how can we make this happen? Hmm. All right, we'll come back to that. Uh, interestingly enough, something got my attention that you just said about yelling at strangers on the streets. And, and I actually want to talk about the psychology of, of, you know, protesting in front of these, you know, you know, stores and things like that and kind of what lessons you have brought from that to your, you know, in terms of human interaction. Because I can tell you, I get solicited when I walk into half these places and I'm just like, leave me the hell alone. And sure. I don't doubt that you got that. But I'd imagine with the amount of exposure you've had to human beings there's got to be some incredible lessons that you've brought uh, from it about human psychology and human behavior, which I'm really interested in. Very much so. And I think I took a, a direction that most activists unfortunately don't, which is I started to read about psychology because I realized this was, this was it. I mean, we were in the business of changing minds. Mm. And uh, if I didn't start reading books like you know, Influenced by Cialdini and all these you know, just like crucial texts to understand what motivates people, I, I, I would uh, – I would probably still be out on the street screaming at people. And I actually, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't necessarily discount that as a tactic. And often, oftentimes, I mean, it it really, it really depends on your target. You know, if you're at a place where, uh, okay, we used to go to the opera house, the opening day of opera house in Seattle every year. And this, you might be wondering why the heck would you do that? Well, that's the only place in Seattle that you see fur coats. (laughs) So, uh, people wear the fur coats out to the opening day of opera. And, and we would, we our, we our explicit goal was to shame people. And um, that is a tactic that might be effective when every other tactic has failed. In other words, like the people that are wearing fur coats in 2014, like they've heard it all. You, you know what I mean? You're not going to change them. The only thing you can do is shame them. So um, that's a limited uh, example where that might be effective. But um, yeah, to, what we learned about psychology um, is, uh, I mean, there's so much. You know, I got, I, I became motivated to become a vegan and an activist through a form of shaming. I, I, I was listening to bands that were calling me a murderer and calling me a scumbag and call, <laughs> you know, for eating animals and for not taking action. And um, that worked on me, but that doesn't work on everybody. So I guess what I learned is that, and it's a kind of it's a really boring answer, but it really it 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 just depends on someone's psychological makeup. Like what motivates them ultimately depends on who they are. And you've got to figure out how to determine that. 
So there, there's a couple of things here that you, you said uh, that I want to go back to. You know, you actually mentioned the idea of the only metric that matters and which in your case happened to be the number of animals you're saving. Makes me think a lot about the world that we live in and how we measure our lives. Um, and it's something that's been on my mind lately because, uh, you know, recently one of the things that I, I was sitting down with a business partner and saying is, you know, we measure a lot of metrics, like how many people subscribe, how many people download. I said, well, what about meaning that we're creating? Can you measure that? And shouldn't we put it on a spreadsheet? Because I have a feeling that measuring the meaning we're creating in the world could be the fundamental thing. In fact, I have a feeling there is a book to be written about this. So I guess, you know, from the perspective that you've had of, of having gone to prison, having been, on a, been a fugitive, which we will get into because I want to talk a lot about that as well. What do you see as the only metric that matters now? And, you know, how do you tie that into the business of changing minds? Does that make sense as a question? It, it does. And I, I, I don't think my answer has changed. <laughs> I, I, I guess I guess I guess it has changed somewhat in that. um it's. I, I understand the difference between a long-term measure and so, uh, uh, like a sort of metric in the long term and the short sure. term. In other words, if you cut a fence and release animals, you, it's very easy to quantify. But I have friends who have um, of saved millions of animals through making one phone call to one policymaker, mm -hmm. and I, I I can't argue that that's done more in one in five minutes than I've done in my whole life. Right. So um. So I, I understand the difference. It, I understand get, getting comfortable with not being able to quantify things, but doing it as much as I can, and also, um, also understanding that you know the the, the 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 effects of actions might take years to bear fruit. Now, um, so to answer your question directly, I I nothing has changed. I guess I would more broadly say my goal is to alleviate suffering, mm -hmm. and um, and and that's an even diff more difficult metric uh, right. to measure, um, but. But that has not changed, and it, you know it doesn't mean human animal. Um, it, it, we all we all feel the same. Hmm. Yeah. I, it, well, it's interesting. I mean, then the only reason I brought it up is because this whole idea of measuring meaning has been on my mind based on you know conversations I've been having with people who listen to the show, you know, across social media, and it's like, wait a minute, this may be the most important thing we're doing every week. De listen, if you can crack that code, you will <laughs> you'll be a famous man, no doubt. So, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears. And let's talk about what it's like to be a fugitive. We've had a lot of people who've spent time in prison here, and we're going to talk about that as well. Never had somebody who's a fugitive on the run. So I want to, and as for as long as you, you were. So let's get into what that whole experience was like. Yeah, this is the fun part. I actually have not been able to talk about this until relatively recently. So a right. lot of what I, a lot, pretty much anything you ask, I've never talked about. Awesome. Um, so, um, you know, I've always said like the, the, the only two rules to being a fugitive are to have an ID under a different name mm -hmm. and to not call your parents. Uh, <laughs> if, you can if you can avoid those two things or you can accomplish those two things, um, you can be fairly successful. Um, I kind of caught the tail end of when a lot of things were fairly simple. Um, when, I, when, I, when we got, we got pulled over in Wisconsin and released, um, we knew we were caught. They confiscated our car. We knew it was just a matter of time. So I went on the run at that point. This was in 97. And the first thing I did is I got a few books from this, uh, this company, this publisher that went out, has gone out of business since, but they were called Lumpanics. And they published sort of an A to Z catalog on every how to do every illegal thing you could think of. And one of the, one of those things, uh, one of those several of those books were about how to get IDs under fake names. And I just and these books were written like this is ninety seven. So these books were written in like eighty one. Like wow. I had no business following these as, as blueprints for felonious activity. But I uh, 
I, I did it anyway, and I, I literally went from Kinko's with my fake forged photocopied uh, birth certificate and uh, and, and photocopied power bill that mm-hmm. I just like you could still see like the whiteout tape and the photocopy, and I just walked right to the DMV, and I was able to get a uh, uh, an ID under a different name. And so, um, and by the way, if you're gonna get any fugitives out there, aspiring fugitives, <laughs> if you're ever gonna if you're ever gonna do this, don't uh, don't pick a name that's like funny. That's like an inside joke right. because you have to live with that name potentially for the rest of your life. So I took like. I took like I think it was like the first name of one of the Beastie Boys, and I tacked it on to like the I made the last name like one, the name of one of my favorite punk rock bands or something. And then when I walked out of there with the ID, I was like, "Oh my god, I might be like Adam, you know, like dumpster diver for the rest of my life or whatever my <laughs> last name was." Like this is really stupid. Uh, so I went on. The, I, once you have the ID. It's really the only things that could trip you up at that point are the social security number. So uh-huh. I really was not able to work a normal job um, because I'd read a lot of books and that's what trips people up a lot. So, um, yeah, I didn't call my friends, didn't call my family. Um, and uh, I had this ID and I lived uh, that way for, for eight years. Wow. So I still have a lot of questions about that, but I, I want to share a personal story about the IDs. I, we went to Reno in college once, and it turns out that you can walk into any Photoshop. These are the days when you know camera shops were popular. They'll give you a, a, a you know a fake photo, and they'll give you an ID, and you can write whatever you want on it. And <laughs> a casino, it turns out, really doesn't care if it's valid because all they want is your money. Right. And then a friend of ours won ten thousand, like four thousand dollars playing poker. So he had to give this like fake ID to get his money. It was ridiculous, but that's a whole other aside. You know, just <laughs> he should have talked to me. I could have set him up. Yeah. That's what I, that's why it, it you know, you're, you telling that story jogged my memory. Uh, I, so a couple of different things here, you know, the thing that intrigued me that you said the most is that you can't have any contact with your parents, uh, as one of sort of the big rules of being a fugitive. What's the psychological impact of that kind of disconnect from the people you love in your life, uh, on you and on them? Oh wow! Uh, this is something I've only talked about with maybe a couple of uh, ex-girlfriends <laughs> because <laughs> it it seems to come up. Um, well, I've been known to ask weird questions from time. No, to this time. is great. Um, yeah, I don't think I've fully recognized the impact until recently. Um, it it uh, I mean, just to put it in one sentence, it makes it very difficult to get close to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's not so much the absence of uh, that's as much the absence of contacting friends and family for, for eight years as it is, uh, not being able to let anybody get close to you while you're a fugitive. Right. Um, I had, um, and another way that manifests is that I am constantly being accused of being evasive about mm-hmm. things because I, I can't shake it because I had to be for so long. There is somebody, I, you know, somebody, uh, w- uh, one of my ex-girlfriends was telling me that she, um, noticed that every time I tell a story, I leave out names and I just, <laughs> everybody's my friend. It's it's it, it makes me seem like I'm hiding something, but the fact is, like for years and years, if I was telling a story to somebody who didn't know who I really was, mm-hmm. um, if there's always a small chance that if I b- mention a name, it's a small world. You know, they might know that person, right? And go, oh, you know, so and so, and then they'll call that person. That person will be like, I don't know who that guy's name, you know, and then all of a sudden the whole thing will unravel, and I'm in prison. So um, that it 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 makes it. I to this day, I have not fully shaken like the ability to sort of. You know, like really let my guard down, and also, um, also uh, not appear to be hiding something. <laughs> so, I mean, what about with your parents? How does that? How did it affect things with them? I mean, to not hear from your son for eight years—I think my parents would be horrified. 
Yeah, they were. You know, my parents come from, you know, Northern California, West Coast, you know, grew up in the 60s. Like, they kind of get it. Um, they weren't hippies by any stretch, but I, I don't think it was – I'm sure it was traumatic for them. And honestly, you know, it, this never comes up. Like, it, it literally is the big elephant in the room. It is never spoken of. Um, so I've never gotten, gotten into that with Mm -hmm. them about how it affected them. Um, it's just literally never comes up. So I, I think they understand it had to be done. They understand, you know, it's very, they understand how unjust it was that I was looking at a life sentence at age, you know, 21 for freeing animals. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think they saw it as a very smart, calculated decision. Even if I ended up only spending two years in prison, there was no way I could have known that up front. So, Mm. so you know, you mentioned that, you know, you, for you personally, you end up being really evasive, like you have these disconnects, it's really hard to get close to people. You know, one of the things that I've heard uh, about being a fugitive is that there is this like just endless weight on you that you can't shake um, throughout the entire period. In fact, it's almost liberating by the time you're done with it, uh, even if you get caught because you've been living with, you know, this false identity for so long. I'd love to hear you talk about that in more depth. You know, I, I, I can't say that was my experience. And mm. I might I may I may one day wake up and realize that I've been in denial, but I I, I, I very quickly developed a um another life and mm-hmm. another friends and another sense of purpose. I was a I was a I was a writer, I had you know, I was publishing books and I I had this whole other life that I built very quickly. And so um and so I, I, I feel like you know, I was only I was actually no, I was twenty I think I was 20 when I committed these these actions. Mm-hmm. So I went on the run when I was 20 years old. So there was more in my sort of adult life as a fugitive than not. And um, <laughs> wow. And so I, I, I and and prior to that, I mean, we could, this is too big of a subject to get into. But before I was on the run, I had a very punk rock lifestyle, mm-hmm. and I was I I lived in an abandoned uh, 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 abandoned house in one of the richest zip codes, probably the richest zip code in the whole state of Washington. I had this view of downtown Seattle. It was a multi-million dollar house and I lived in this house. It was abandoned, it, but it was it was maintained by the city. It was owned by the city, so it didn't look abandoned. Anyway, the point is, wow. my life by many measures, it was a very easy transition from that life to a fugitive life because I was basically off uh-huh. off the radar, off the grid completely as it was. Interesting. Uh, if that makes sense. So I guess the, the really interesting thing for me is that you have this huge passion as an animal rights activist, and now you have to make this pretty drastic identity shift. I'm guessing you did nothing related to animal rights at that point? I, I couldn't do anything that was sort of like on the front lines, uh-huh. like name in the paper kind of thing. I had to avoid that, but I, I, I continued to, to do my part. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, you know, it's interesting. You brought up, you know, the social security number. What about the rest of it? Like, you know, I mean, we've talked about relationships, but what about day-to-day functioning as a fugitive, you know, like getting credit cards and, you know, bank accounts and all that? I mean, is it just, I'm changing my name and you're a whole new person? I mean, it's funny because as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, huh, I'm like, could I change my name and, you know, basically forget my student loan debt ever existed? <laughs> it's a lot harder now. Uh, yeah. The DMVs have kind of gone on lockdown after uh, after 9-11 especially. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the bank account thing, actually, I think you nailed the number one uh, pain point as a fugitive was that bank account. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else, I found it was fairly easy to get around. Now, I, I had to um, – it's funny because when I talked to um, – I had a, a, a couple of uh, – long-term ex-girlfriends when I was on the run and they had no idea who I was. And if you were to ask them right now, the first thing, as far as like red flags, the first thing they would say is, yeah, he just, he just refused to get a bank account. I, I couldn't figure it. He was always using my bank account. And I used every, anyone I lived with, I figured out a reason, an explanation, a justification for needing to use their bank account. And um, so that just came through, through the support of friends who didn't know what they were supporting. Hmm. <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting to me is now it takes us back into the psychology of of all of this. I mean, it sounds to me like one of the most valuable things that has come from all of this is an incredible ability to persuade people. That is very interesting. I, I, 
I got very deeply into um, into re- uh, learning about communication uh, through, and, and that was um, inspired entirely by by my fugitive status um, because so much of what I was doing. I mean, this is this is a whole book that needs I need to write, but um, so much of what I was doing um, what depended on me, um, you know socially engineering people on kind of the more sort of <laughs> one end and also just just building rapport with people and be another way to put it um because i i, I mean it was an entirely not necessarily criminal existence it mm-hmm. had a, it had it had the all of the uh all of the uh, uh the, the the features of a criminal existence without actually committing too many crimes <laughs> while i was on the run um because that brings its own its own problems but um yeah so i was having to um uh uh you know, I just needed more out. I needed more support, and I had to figure out how to build rapport to get that support. And All I couldn't. Right. T- I couldn't be honest with people. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, communicate. I was. I was reading. I mean, when the FBI, when I got arrested and the FBI raided my house, there was there were fifteen books next to my bed um, on communication skills because that's what <laughs> I was. I was very seriously pursuing that as a as a study. Okay, so I think you you finally found my hot button, and this is what I'm going to title the interview: Lessons in Communication from a Fugitive on the Run. Uh, <laughs> there we go. Because I think that's actually really interesting, uh, and I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. Let's do a deeper dive into this. I know you said there's an entire book here. Um, what are the lessons in communication from a fugitive on the run that could be applied to our own lives in our everyday situations? As crazy as it sounds, even if we're not fugitive on the run, fugitives on the run. Um, it, it, one of the big things is that um, you have to always have your story prepared. So, I mean, I, I, to this day, I am, I'm not embellishing this in the slightest. If I go to Whole Foods, I think if somebody walked up to me right now and said, what are you doing? I need to know exactly what you're doing. I have the whole story in my head. And it doesn't mean, I don't just mean like I'm here. I don't mean I would just deliver a story that's like I'm here to buy groceries. I mean, all right, look, um, I, I, uh, I woke up today and I feel like realized I was out of this thing and my friend's coming over and she really wants to make this thing. So I, I had the whole story and it's crazy that sounds that story. I'm always refined as I'm walking around the store. <laughs> the story is playing in my head and how I can make it better. And, and I, I, I realize that sounds kind of weird because probably I'm probably leaving a whole lot out of this. But everywhere I was when I was a fugitive, I had to have a story. Mm-hmm. And that could mean I mean, there was a lot of aspects to that life. I haven't got, I've only kind of alluded to um, that we could get into. But there was um, there were a lot of financial hardships and um, involved with that. I, I couldn't have a job, so I had to get very creative. Um, I did a lot. I, f- I figured out a way to get everything I wanted in life for free. Okay, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> okay, that's a huge, huge subject, and okay. there's a lot. I'm as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, what the hell do I want to admit to, and what do I not want to admit <laughs> to? But um, and that could go run the spectrum from like dumpster diving to uh-huh. shoplifting to um, having some sort of petty little. Um, uh, scams at chain stores that would <laughs> get me by uh-huh. and um and, and and all these other things. So uh but I always had to have a story and, okay. and, and I still always have a story. So this story. Now let's get it I mean you said there's parts you've alluded to but we haven't di- di- dove deep into. Let's get into them. Let's talk about this how you get all this stuff for free, everything else. Let's let's go. This is the part that I really I feel like there's a lot of depth here in juice. Okay. You know what? Can I just jump in? I just want to clarify what I just <laughs> activism also um, might even be the bigger um, factor in that because when you're an activist and you are 
uh, that oftentimes involve being, involves being places you're not supposed to be. So mm-hmm. we would go, let's say we wanted to compile research about a university research lab. We would go in in college student clothes and we would see what we could find and poke around, see if we could get access to the animals and if we could photograph things and so forth. And uh, my activism has taken me to a lot of places that I'm not, I was not supposed to be. And so in those situations, you, all, you really have to have a story. So it's this is kind of where those two subjects come together, the activism, the fugitive status, but um but but just that just kind of uh, expands on on that last point. But go ahead. So you mentioned, you know, being able to get everything you needed for free. I would imagine that's a fairly useful skill to have even in the world today. Yeah. So let's talk about that in more depth. Um I, there is if you name something, I could tell you exactly the little hustle I had to get it for free. Uh, honestly, I mean, literally everything from gray, <laughs> Greyhound passes, Greyhound bus passes, to phone cards in this in the pre cell phone days, okay. to uh, to food. Uh, I had I had I had a a. A trick for everything, and a trick that is probably not one you thought of. <laughs> well, let's so it, let's let's yeah. go into specifics. Uh, let, let's talk about food. It, it's interesting. I mean, the reason this also intrigues me so much is because I, I keep wondering how this would all work in the day and age of social media, and if it would be possible. Um, and I know to some degree a lot of crazy things are possible, only because you know one of our former advisors and mentors literally walked out of his door with ten dollars and a laptop three years you know three years ago, and did you know visited all fifty states. And, you know, worked one on one with 500 people and started multiple businesses. So that became a very clear, clear to me in terms of what po- what's possible. But I want to hear this from the perspective that you have uh, of how you got things for free. Let's start with food. I, I think it's really funny that you have like a hacker or something for everything. Um, I, 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 I practice this technique that was called the left hand technique. And you can do this to this day. No technology will ever make this obsolete, and it exploits a massive blind spot in every supermarket. <laughs> I want to be clear. I did one, one, two things. One, I don't do this today okay. at, at all, like 100%. Like there's too much on the line. I don't, I don't even jaywalk these days. And two, um, I, I only – and people could call this a really lame rationalization. I understand the, the, the arguments here, but I, I just want to clarify. I only did this at like the giant – big box chain stores. Okay? <laughs> right. So those two things out of the way, um, the, the left-hand technique is where you get something cheap that you mm-hmm. can afford, like uh, a couple of uh, carrots or something, uh, a small candy bar, whatever. And then you, uh, you get the item you want, and um, it doesn't matter. You can get 10 items. It's basically as much as you can hold in one hand. Mm-hmm. And you get in a line, and uh, you hold it in the hand that's closest to the door, like the direction you're going to be exiting. So it could either be left hand or right hand. And you get in the line and you put the item you want to buy, the cheap item on the, on the counter, on the, on the carousel, and you hold the other stuff just really casually at your side. And, but it happens to be out of sight of the cashier. Now, the genius in this – I didn't invent this, but the genius in this is that if there's a loss prevention agent or any kind of security or anyone that thinks you're suspicious mm-hmm. up to that point, as soon as you get in the line – you're no longer suspect as a criminal, right? Because you're obviously paying for that stuff. You wouldn't. You, there's no way to shoplift right in front of a of a cashier, right? Right. Unless you hold that stuff casually at your side. Now, the, you will. No one. This sounds implausible, but I did this thousands of times and never had an issue. Uh, never got caught. Um, and it just exploits like a like a visual blind spot as well as sort of a, sort of a paradigm blind mm-hmm. spot of uh, store security. Wow. <laughs> does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I mean, like I said, this is all morbid curiosity. So let, let's go to the next one that I'm interested in. What about shelter? Um, I, when you're, when you're 18, you, you don't know things can't be done, quote unquote, <laughs> which is the best part about being 18. And I try to maintain that to this day. So when I was 18, my dad said, you have to get a job or go to school. And mm-hmm. I did not want to do either of those things. So I got a uh, crowbar 
in a backpack. And I decided I was going to well, – I lived in Mercer Island, Washington. So anyone can Google that. That's the haven of the, uh, of the rich. <laughs> in, uh, in, in, it's, it's not an island like in the ocean. It's an island in a lake. It's like three minutes from downtown Seattle. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing you hit when you go east. Everybody's lived there. Bill Gates, Paul Allen, you name it. Um, so um, Jeff Bezos. So um, I decided that I was going to find an abandoned house in the richest zip code in the state of Washington. And, um, bec- and no one had told me it couldn't be done. So I said, heck, I'm going to do it. And I got a crowbar, walked up and down every street with my girlfriend at the time. And within about three hours, we found this house and looked in the windows that looked very, very like flood damaged. It was empty. I did some research. This is too big of a story, but I'm going to just gonna give the bridge version. But I did some research. I found out the house was owned by the Department of Transportation. It was not scheduled to be rezoned for residential for at least two years. So I went back to the house, broke in, and I lived there for two years. <laughs> and the house, eventually, when it was auctioned off, I think it sold for like – this is in 19 – like – $99, but it sold for like $2.5 million. Wow. It had a view of downtown Seattle. It was just palace in in the richest zip code <laughs> in the state, and it was all mine for two years. So that was my biggest uh, housing hack. Okay, so here's here's something you said there that really actually intrigues me. That, that, that's part of that story that I think is probably the most relevant thing to somebody listening. You said, you know, when you're 18, you have this sense of uh, not knowing that something can't be done. How do you renew that sense of not knowing something can't be done when you're an adult, when you've gone through life and have seen things that can't be done? Um, you look at people who have done those things that can't be done, and you, you're always going to seek, you're always going to find what you seek. So mm-hmm. this gets into like NLP and limiting beliefs and so forth, but sure. you just have to identify those things and, um, and train your focus on the, on the evidence around you that disproves those things. Mm. All right, so let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and let's talk about how this time on the run comes to an end and, and start to get into your time in prison. Yeah. Uh, let's start with the FBI coming to knock on your door. That's actually not how it happened. Um, oh. I actually, um, I was at a Starbucks mm-hmm. and uh, and um, some police thought I were, was behaving suspiciously. I was there to meet a friend in San Jose. I'd taken, I was living in, in uh, Santa Cruz at the time. Um, for the last two years, I was on the run. And uh, I went to meet a friend in San Jose and um, uh, near the, uh, the, the, the bus station there. And, uh, and some police thought I was acting suspiciously and approached me. I had some CDs that I'd taken off the counter that were like in my lap, fully exposed. Cop approached me, said, hey, are you going to buy those? And I went into my activist like no compromise mode where I was like, I'm not telling you my name. I'm not telling you anything. And uh, the cop uh, – was very offended by this and proceeded to arrest me. <laughs> wow! And uh, on shoplifting charges, which was just—I mean, it, uh, although I've, I've admitted to being a shoplifter in the past, in that in that instance, I was not shoplifting. Um, but uh, and those charges were eventually dropped. But um, I got arrested, and they ran my prints back at the station, and uh, and it came back instantly who what my real name was. So that that's that's how I got caught. Wow. So talk to us about the transition from, you know, being a fugitive to life in prison. Uh, I'm, that, you know, obviously, like you said, you know, we've had people who spent time in prison here. And, and given your perspective, I think this is going to be really interesting because, I mean, we've had drug dealers and we've had bank robbers who've done some pretty, I mean, they've been in maximum security facilities. I don't know what your prison situation was like, so I'm really interested. I was on the, uh, the beach in Santa Cruz at 10 a.m., and I was in solitary at 3 p.m. Uh, that, that's how abrupt the transition was. And, and culturally, I can't imagine a more abrupt transition for anyone. I mean, I, I, uh, 
I lived in a very small bubble. Um, and, um, you know, I, we got into my background and then, um, you know, the friends that I was with in Santa Cruz at the time, um, did not, well, just as an understatement, they did not, they did not prepare me. I, they couldn't have been further from the people I encountered <laughs> when I got to, when I got to jail. So they put me immediately in solitary because I refused to take their, uh, their, well, for one, I was, Label a terrorist, but also mm-hmm. I refused to take their TB test because it had an animal product in it. So, and as a vegan, I wasn't going to take that. So they put me in solitary, and I was in there with like these Aryan Brotherhood guys. Oh, and it shit. Was like it was I, when I say solitary, I had they could it was one person allowed out of the cell at the time, so guys would come to my door, and it was just like what what I found was interesting is that the first day of county jail was was really really bad. The first day being in the federal system was really really bad. My first day of actual prison was really really bad. But once I cleared those hurdles, um, prison was not at all what I thought it was. You know, I've been in, fed the same stuff we all have about what prison is. Sure. And, um, you know, there was like one instance um, uh, where I, when I got to MCC Chicago, which is a federal holding facility in the downtown Chicago, and they brought me in. I had my bedroll, and they just kind of pushed you through the door and shut the door behind you. And everybody lined up on the, t- on the second tier, and there's guys whistling. They're like, we got fresh meat here, and like everything that you think would happen. Mm-hmm. But what you don't realize is they're, they're making fun of what they see on TV. Does that make sense? Like they're just doing it as a joke. They don't act- that's not actually how it is. Really? And, um, and what I found is that you know, if you want to survive in prison, the same social principles apply. The same rules of communication. Like if you annoy people <laughs> right. outside of prison, people aren't going to like you in prison. It's not that much different. The actual rule book is different. Like the culture is different. But the 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 the, the way that you build rapport with people and the way you the way you um, get people to like you outside inside prison, it's exactly the same. So it's not this like terrifying everybody here is going to try to kill me and rape me environment that we've probably brought up been brought up to believe well here's the thing um i i can't i can only speak from my experience which is a small sliver i i was not in a minimum security prison i was in actually a medium the average sentence at the prison i was at was like i think it was like 16 years so like i was dealing i was around like some serious heavy hitters but um, it was not a state prison, and state prisons. Um, the culture of federal prison is much different than most state prisons. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got like fifty state prison cultures, and then you've got like the federal prison culture, and the, each one of those is very distinct. So it would be impossible for me to talk in a general sense. But medium security federal prison around a lot of real tough dudes. <laughs> um, I can tell you, um, it, it it was not near. It was not the Darwinian struggle that I had been told prison would be at all. Mm. Um, and and the, and the people that did the best were, frankly, the nicest people. As counterintuitive as that sounds, that's really how it was. Interesting. So, how did that whole time alter your perspective on life and your worldview and all of that? I mean, how did how did that time change you as a person? It makes what we worry about out here seem incredibly petty like for the rest of my life i will never look at anyone as having a real problem honestly <laughs> like that, that that doesn't have an actual real problem um so in a lot of ways it makes me kind of insensitive because i don't I, i'm very tempted to just go look i was in solitary eating like oatmeal for six months like shut up like you don't you know, like your boyfriend broke up with you that's fine but like you know what i mean like it, it makes you it, it it changes your perspective on and raises the bar as to like what it what it means to be um uh, like affected by an experience. Sure. Um, so it, it, I guess in that way that the, the, the downside of that is it kind of has a numbing effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the biggest one. 
I mean, that's, that's a big subject, but that's the biggest one. Yeah, it, it definitely is a big subject. So let's do this. Uh, I want to talk about one other thing here. Um, and this will kind of start to bring, bring us full circle. You know, we had a friend here, uh, who actually also had spent time in prison named Meg Warden. She was kind of the, the gateway to our guests who have all been to prison. Uh, <laughs> you know, with her, it was like, wow, these people have fascinating stories. I want to talk to more of them. Uh, one of the things that she actually said that I never forgot was that coming out of prison was actually much harder than growing in because of this sort of reintegration process into a normal society. I mean, given your background as a fugitive on the run, I mean, I'm really interested in how you navigated that whole transition of coming back out. Man, um, I think those problems that she spoke of start to happen when you when you do more than a couple years. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've heard two years is kind of like the, the, the threshold. Right. Um, and so I here's the thing I had a ton I was so privileged I had a massive amount of support when I got out I mean I just had I had like six people meeting me at the get the gate with like money and clothes I mean I just had everything so uh, I was at a hotel in La Jolla California within, within, <laughs> wow. within two and a half hours of getting out of prison so okay um, I, I had a very privileged experience I, I, I think um, I, I did get very depressed when I got out of prison so um, and I've never fully understood what that was but I mm. think what it was was um, maybe different than most people, which is this, the sense of purpose I had in my entire life that I had before prison. I couldn't go back to that. Um, I could go back to some of those people, a lot of the, most of those people, but I couldn't go back to the life. I couldn't go back to, um, and this is a massive subject, but basically I was told by lawyers, like, don't talk about anything you did while you were on the run. You have to forget. I mean, I had like books that were about to get published. I had all this massive life with all this like life infrastructure that I just had to walk away from. All wow. these goals, everything had to get abandoned. Like stuff that I'd spent years on that was just about to reach fruition, like I had to just walk away from all of it. So I was very debilitated by that and I could not, emotionally so, and I could not talk to anyone about this. I couldn't say, oh, well, I used to write these books and do this thing and like I was, I couldn't admit to anything. It was very, so it was, I, I felt very isolated from everybody even though I was around a lot of people. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I think about what you're describing as the vacuum that uh, any creative professional experiences after they manage to put a big project out the door. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I've heard this, you know, authors say the day their book publishes is one of the most depressing days ever because it's done. You know, the thing <laughs> yeah. that you've been yeah, working yeah. on for nine months is, is done and over with. I mean, I <clears throat> I felt the same thing when we finished an event last year. It was a sense of emptiness. Um I'm, I mean, and it was nowhere near as significant as what you're, what you're talking about, but I mean, to have all of that, I mean, effectively your identity just lost. How do you, how do you recover from that kind of a loss and get back to some semblance of normal and functioning? You know what? It's exactly like being a fugitive twice over, (laughs) you know, like I was a fugitive on the run. I had to abandon my life before that. And then when I got out of prison, I had to abandon my life as a fugitive. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the way you recover, it was very um, difficult. I mean, here's the thing. It's just a bunch of holes that are empty and you have to fill them. And, and so I just had to find a new sense of purpose, which, which was, was not hard because I, I kind of adopted like a spokesperson role mm-hmm. in, in the animal rights. But then that begins to feel very empty very quickly because then I'm sort of become what I despise. Like I'm just right. the guy at the podium and that, that wears out very quickly. And I eventually realized like I just can't be that guy anymore. Hmm. I might do it once a year, but I, I can't be that guy full time. So, um, that was very difficult. So I, I don't know. I'm still, I still have some holes that haven't been filled, honestly. 
um, in my life. Um, and, um, the fact like in the last few years, um, there's sort of a, there's a lot of legal like statute of limitations things that got cleared up. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I'm just now starting to revisit, you know, now it's been like 10 years or so, but since all those things that I had to walk away from, like unfinished books that I haven't, haven't, you know, they're mostly written and things like that, that, um, that, um, you know, it's hard because they say you can't, you know, I don't know, some Buddhist saying you can't swim in the same river twice. And I, I, uh, it's very hard to go back to things and pick things up 10 years later, but that's what I'm trying to do right now. Hmm. Well, Hey, uh, Peter, this has been just absolutely phenomenal and fascinating and interesting. I can see why Ryan said I would like you, uh, <laughs> just because this is so bizarre and, and out there. So I'm going to ask you one final question, uh, which is how we finish everything here at the unmistakable creative. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Um, <clears throat> it's it. Uh, it's their. You know, it's it's their story. Um, everybody has a story, and I think it's their ability to tell that story, um, and their willingness to tell tell that story and tell it honestly. Um, um, it, you know, I would encourage everybody to figure out what their story is, and that's going to make you um, unmistakable. Awesome. Well, hey, Peter, again, uh, it's been my absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest on The Unmistakable Creative. Um, I really, really enjoyed our chat, and I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and some very fascinating lessons uh, with our audience. Hey, thank you. This has been awesome. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.